We're going to read again, we're going to read slightly extended version of the passage that Charlie read part of from Luke's Gospel that the painting over there is based on. If you haven't had a close look at it, wander over and have a look later on. And we're going to read from Luke chapter 9, um, verses 1 to 17. I'm actually going to miss out, <coughs> excuse me, verses 7 to 9, but don't worry, Corinne, I'll just skip over those when we get to it. So we're going to read 1 to uh, 6 and then 10 to 17 of Luke chapter 9. Let's hear God's Word. When Jesus had called the twelve together, He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal those who were ill. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, (coughs) no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt, Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. And then there's a little interlude about Herod's reaction, and we pick it up again at verse 10. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. The disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Amen. May God bless our understanding of his word. (coughs) Context is everything. You're here today as a, not just as a result of, but on the back of this past week. It was a busy week. It was a quiet week. Uh, It was a stressful week. It was a blessed week. You come with thanksgiving or you come exhausted. And you're going into a week next week when you don't know what's coming up. You might have an idea what's coming up, but you don't know in the detail. You don't know in the interaction. You don't know in a whole lot of ways. And and sometimes when we read particularly stories like the feeding of the 5,000, because it is such a phenomenal standout miracle, It's one that you've, you know, if you grew up in Sunday school, you knew the feeding of the 5,000, right? Because it's one of those standout stories that's a standalone. But I think we do it a disservice if we just take it as a standalone. Because all Scripture is meant to be read in the context of what comes before and what comes after. Which is why we've looked at the little bit that comes before. And it's the same in Mark's Gospel as well. What comes before. Because what comes before informs the lesson of this miracle. I mean, the miracle is a great standalone story. Wow, five loaves and two fish and 5,000 people were fed. 
well, 5,000 men were fed. We're not sure if their wives were with them or whether they were back, you know, doing all the work while the men were, you know, pontificating about spiritual things and listening to Jesus, or whether there were women and children in the crowd as well. But 5,000 by any stretch is a big crowd. We could not fit 5,000 people in this building. So it's a massive, uh, what, George Square? I'm not very good at scale, you know. Anyone good at estimating how many people would 5,000 fit in George Square? Seven and a half thousand in George Square. All right, okay, so two, all right, enough of that. <laughs> Two-thirds of George Square uh, was filled up. Okay, so there's this kind of a, a, a local, local picture of what that looks like, a fairly decent filling of George Square. And I know that there are those, because I have heard them, and it just makes me angry every time that I hear one of those sermons where people say, well, everybody just had a little bit. This was mostly about sharing, uh, and it was really symbolic. Uh, I think that little bit they're talking about is the size of their faith, because that, to me, is an insult. It's an insult to Jesus. It's an insult to the power of God. It's an insult to the compassionate heart of Jesus, and it's an insult to the reality of people's appetites. You take a hungry person and give them a communion-sized cube of bread and a communion-sized cube of fish, probably about a tenth of the size, and say, there you are, you'll be feeling full now. And then how do you compute the fact that there were 12 basketfuls left over? If there's anything left over and that's all you've had to eat, well, you're going to go for seconds, right? So let's dismiss the cube-sized faith that says this was not an amazing miracle. It's why it's recorded in all the Gospels. And it is an amazing miracle because it's a shift in terms of Jesus' power and the revelation of who He is. What has Jesus done that has been miraculous up until this point in the Gospels? Well, without sending you off to kind of do the research, let me tell you that mostly what Jesus has done up until now has been healing and casting out demons. Now, that is no small thing by any manner of means, but it's people-focused, it's illness and disease-focused, and it's limited to one sphere of need. But actually, this miracle sits alongside the miracles of Jesus walking on water, Jesus stilling the storm. These are what are called, what, this is what's called one of the creation miracles. That's not just about Jesus' lordship over disease or engagement with people. It's about a sign of His lordship over the world and everything that's created. And so, there's an upping of the stakes here. It's one of those moments, you know, you talked, Ian, um, about, about imagination. You know, God's imagination in, the, in this uh, story is, is, is phenomenal because He's upping the stakes. What has He just done? He's just sent the 12 apostles out to all the surrounding villages. Put yourself in the situation that you are one of the twelve, and suddenly, one day, the Jesus whom you have seen do all the healing and the casting out of demons says, right, now it's your turn. Off you go, find a partner, crocodile, off to the villages, 
and you're going to do it. How do you react? Panic? Terror? But uh, speechlessness? How do you react when suddenly Jesus says, well, come on, you've been watching me long enough. You know how this works, right? Now you're going to do it. Actually, maybe I should just stop now and say, right, off you go. <laughs> George Square, the Cannon Galleries, and Enoch Stein that way. If I actually did that to you, you'd be like, yeah, very funny, Alistair. Yeah, no, very funny, Alistair. <laughs> You're not serious, right? So you get a flavor of what it must have been like when Jesus actually said, well, off you go then. And by the way, I want you to go in an attitude of vulnerability and dependence. I want you to go to people not lording it with your blue apron on, but I want you to go without resources, no tunic, no extra shirt, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money. Do not take things with you that will help you to cheat <laughs> or indeed allow you to rely on what you've got or what you can do. Because I can't speak for you, but that's mostly what I do. I rely on my wits, my resources, my imagination, what I have to hand, what money I might have at my disposal, what money we might raise. You see, the, the focus is, is often at that level, isn't it? How can I solve this problem? And of course, Jesus was upping the stakes because he was doing that thing that none of us like to have done to us, which is being pushed out of our comfort zone and being sent to do something that we know only too well we cannot do because we haven't got it. And no one likes to feel exposed. And Jesus called them to go out or sent them out. And so off they go whether in ashen-faced terror or perhaps excited anticipation. We don't know how they went. It doesn't tell us. Just that he gave them these instructions to go and to preach, to drive out demons and to heal the sick, to put themselves in a posture of trusting God to open a door, a house, a place where they might stay as they went. Hospitality was a given in the Middle East, but Jesus provided, saying that there will be some people who will welcome you, and there are other people who will not. So just move on if that's the case. See where the Lord opens the door for you. I asked you to think earlier on about times and situations when you've been, if you like, in a vulnerable place, where you didn't have what was needed, and then somehow a door opened. An opportunity came your way. It opened up a miracle, small or great, meant that you were able to do the next bit and the next thing. That's the context. Off they go, then they come back. And we know from the other gospels that they came back rejoicing because of the incredible miracles that they had seen God, the Holy Spirit, do through them as they had obeyed what Jesus had told them to do. So they went from village to village, preaching the good news and healing people everywhere. And then when the apostles returned from verse 10, they reported to Jesus 
what they had done. And that's where in the other Gospels we find this excited, exuberant sense of uh, amazement and joy and privilege and wonder at, at what they had seen God do, at just the sheer rush and the buzz. I was out street passing on Friday night, and <laughs> I went downstairs into the wind, and uh, there's, there's a bunch of, there's a new cohort of trainees just now uh, who, who are being trained. Um, and we have quite a big team already. There's 13 of us. But for some reason, five of the trainees uh, had decided that Friday night they were going to come out and go on a, on a trainee shift because every trainee has to do two trainee shifts while they're doing the training. So I walked into a room with like 18 people plus the prayer pastors. And then the safe zone pastors came and we're just like, you know, virtually standing around the walls. And it's a great uh, feeling to have all these people who are committed to ministry on the streets in the city. But what was really exciting was going, having a trainee in our group when we went out, because there's just that wide-eyed wonder where you go out to do something new you've never done before, and then you're like, wow, <laughs> that was amazing. Do you remember that, Anna? Remember when you did your training? <laughs> and so they came back, and they were like, wow, God can really use me. And God can really use me to do something that is not of my own making or resourcefulness. That's the critical point here. Because a lot of us are probably fairly privileged, well off. We have a roof over our heads. We have money in the bank. We have a, a, a regular income and a supply of food and so on. And, and that's, let's give thanks for that. That's, I'm not, there's no criticism there. But what that can do sometimes is, is leave us to rely on what we can do by the work and the effort of our own hands. We don't need to walk so much by faith into the risk because we can live safely at a level where we can manage by ourselves. And so when they came back, I suspect they were tired I suspect that they had the euphoria and the high of what they'd seen God do. But on the back of that euphoria and that high, inevitably, there's that time where you kind of go, oh, I'm exhausted. I just need some time out now. I just need a bit of downtime to process. I had tea with a friend last night who's just back from a trip to Malawi. He's a doctor and he was out in a short-term mission there. And he was out with one other guy, and the other guy that he was with is an external processor. And my friend is, has a kind of introvert streak, and he said he was just fried in two weeks, but this guy wouldn't stop talking. And he said, I just needed time to process the impact of being in Malawi, the contrast of a culture with such chronic poverty being in a nurse's station in a, in a maternity unit where if a woman hemorrhage is giving birth, then what they have to do is walk for two kilometers to the nearest place that they might just get phone signal to phone an ambulance. But if they phone an ambulance, there's no guarantee that they'll be able to make that call or indeed that the ambulance will be able to come or respond. You know, that's just a different world. Meanwhile, there's a woman hemorrhaging in a bed. And so they needed time to process the impact of what they'd seen God do and God had done through them. And so Jesus said, well, let's go off to Bethsaida now. 
That was a trip across the lake. Mark tells us that they got in a boat to cut across the Sea of Galilee to get to Bethsaida, which was on the northern shore. The crowds, however, sussed what was going on. And as the boat rode diagonally, which way are you saying? Yeah. That way, the crowds just went on foot round the shore that way. So when they were trying to get away from the crowds to have a little bit of downtime, the crowds just went by land as they went by sea. No doubt picking up more crowds, as crowds often do, uh, along the way. And so when they landed at Bethsaida, there was a bigger crowd. A bigger crowd of people all wanting more. More teaching, more healing, more deliverance, more of Jesus, more of the ministry, more of the people. Every one of us at some time or another, and maybe it hasn't happened to you yet, but there comes a time in your life where people just want another piece of you, and you haven't got many more pieces left. And there are times in all of our lives, whether you're studying, working, or whatever, where actually you're just exhausted and you need time out. And those of you that are studying, now we're cruising towards December, and you've done a bunch of assignments and sat through endless lectures and so on, you may well be reaching that point where actually Christmas is coming, and that's not a bad thing. I need a rest. We need time out. And yet when they arrived, the crowds were already there, and Jesus, we're told, welcomed them. Whoever comes to me, said Jesus, I will never drive away. He didn't drive the crowds away. He didn't say, I'm sorry, I've run out of compassion or interest or teaching or miracles or power. He welcomed the crowd. He will not grow weary. You grow weary. I grow weary. He does not grow weary. He renews the strength of the weary. And so he welcomed them and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and he healed those who needed healing. Jesus' compassion is inexhaustible even though ours is not. Late in the afternoon, so dot, 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 time passed, the twelve came to him. How are they feeling now? They've come back from their mission trip. They tried to get away for some time and some space. Jesus has now been teaching and healing for several more hours. It's now late in the afternoon. The day is waning. And you can almost hear that edge of frustration in their voices when they say, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. Send the crowd away because we're tired, perhaps. Send the crowd away because they won't get anything to eat here. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus had compassion on them because they had nothing to eat. And Jesus ups the stakes for them again. He replied saying, you give them something to eat. Oh, here we go again. The impossible, always the impossible. 
always the impossible. You ask. And I wonder, I wonder sometimes if actually what Jesus is doing here is quite deliberately driving them back to the impossible. He'd already sent them out, and now he's raising the stakes, saying, well, here's a need that's not about healing or driving out demons. Here's another impossible task. When we face impossible tasks, we have two options. One is to look at the practicalities and the realities of it, to look at the resources, to do a cost assessment, uh, to work out whether or not we have what it takes to meet that need, and then, in this case, conclude it can't be done. We don't have money. There are no shops. How much money would it take even if there were shops? Uh, It's not feasible, Jesus. At the level of what we can do to meet this need, it is impossible. And you can stop at that place and say it is impossible. But you see, Jesus doesn't let them away with it is impossible. Because Jesus wants to raise the stakes as he does with you and me, where he wants to say, okay, now look at that impossible thing which you can't do, and let's see if there's another solution that doesn't involve what you can do, but what I can do. And there is a sticking point for much of our lives, where we stop at the point where we say, well, I can't. I don't know how. I don't have the resources. I don't have the experience as they could easily have stopped to the point where Jesus sent them out and said, well, we don't know how to heal the sick or drive out demons, so we can't. Is Jesus allowed to take you out of your comfort zone and to call you to things you can't do? Or is he only allowed to do that which you can do for him? Because therein is the difference between walking by sight and walking by faith. And I'm not putting my hands up and saying I'm really good at this because I'm not. But the challenge is there. It was a simple challenge. You either look at this challenge in terms of what you can do to solve it and resource it, or you look at this challenge through the eyes of Jesus, which were eyes fueled not by what I can do, but by compassion. What needs to be done? What needs to be done? Because you know the compassionate heart of God for you and for other people is not limited by the resources. The compassionate heart of God at work in us should say, Lord, this needs to happen, but I don't know how. This needs to happen, but I don't know how. I mean, at a very pedestrian, prosaic level in the church, I'm wrestling with questions at the moment that say, you know, our last quarterly energy bills were £8,000. We don't have anywhere like that coming in. And I can either say, well, it's not sustainable, or I can say, Lord, I believe that what we are doing and seeking to do in proclaiming Jesus, in extending compassion 
to all sorts of people in the city and being an open door for you and being a place of kingdom ministry, that being a place of compassionate outreach and connection with some of the more vulnerable people in the city, that is your priority. So that comes first. So Lord, how's it going to happen? I don't have any answers or solutions, but I invite you to the prayer journey with me that says, if you see that God's kingdom needs to advance in this city and this place has the opportunity to do that, then Lord, where do the fish and the bread come from? But aside from this place, what about your own life? Do you stay just within the safe comfort space? Or is the compassionate heart of Jesus fixing your eyes on other people or other situations that you would love to see changed or different, and yet you can't see how that could be? Well, Jesus broke five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 people to demonstrate that resources and what you can do need never be a hindrance to what God wants to do. Because that's the challenge. I'm just limited by what I can do. Or is Jesus calling me up to believe beyond what I can see? And so he took the five loaves and the two fish and he looked up to heaven. He looked up to heaven. He modeled the recognition of where the answers come from. He gave thanks and he broke them. And then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. So actually their task and their calling was just to distribute the food. You know, there are hundreds of volunteers passed through Glasgow City Mission. And it really is a beautiful community it's just a lovely place to work. It's work, and it's a challenging engagement. Do you know it was a lot easier for the volunteers before Charlie changed things? It's a lot easier to put on a blue apron that marks you out as different and hand out soup and sandwiches at a safe distance to people that you don't have anything in common with, perhaps, It's a lot more challenging, and it's a lot more Jesus, and it's a lot more real to sit down at table and to have conversation and a meal without an apron that marks you off as separate or other. It's about hospitality. It's about taking away the barriers, and Jesus here was just calling his disciples to serve and distribute the food but the compassion that he had was unequivocally for every single person that was there in that gathering. Charlie and, and the mission are registered with something called Fair Shares. Are you familiar with Fair Shares? Fair Shares is basically a redistribution of food overstock or supermarket overstock. So supermarkets... Um, buy in stuff, and then, you know, there's a rush on this, but there's not a rush on that. So suddenly, they're left with a whole pile of food that no one's buying, and the sell-by date's gone. So it either just goes to landfill somewhere, 
or it can be used and redistributed. And so Fair Shares is a charitable organization that collects supermarket overstock and then makes it available to charities. But it's a bit like Ready Steady Cook. You tell them what you're doing and you tell them how many people and then you just see what turns up. Uh, and so it's, you know, if you're a kind of uh, edgy, spontaneous improviser like Charlie definitely is, then it's like, oh, great, let's see what's in the box today and what could I do with that? And so the mission runs on the generosity of people who give donations, and it runs on things like fair shares, where you don't know whether it's loaves and fishes or whether it's spinach and hazelnut. And you're going to make a meal out of that. Jesus upped the ante, as he does with you and me, And he calls us not to be bound in our heads by the finite resources. He calls us to a heart of compassion that sees beyond our need, our tiredness, or our convenience. The disciples were inconvenienced at the end of a tiring mission to care more, to believe more, and to partner in an impossible miracle to make sure that people who were hungry were going to be fed. And around those tables, if you want to call them, these groups of 50 people, there was a sharing, and everybody ate the same food, and then there was enough for 12 basketfuls left over at the end. 12 basketfuls, a significant number echoed by the fact that in Mark, we also have the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000, which ends up with seven basketfuls. Twelve in the Old Testament is a number that represents the Jewish people, the 12 tribes of Israel. Seven in the Old Testament is a number that represents the Gentiles. There were seven hills, seven Gentile mountains. Uh, And so uh, the Gentile world could be summarized. It was a snapshot summary of, of these seven mountains. And so seven was a Gentile number or a universal number, seven days in a week. And 12 was a specifically Jewish number. And so a little snapshot of Jesus who said, and after I have extended compassion and feeding and provision for the people who are here in front of me, there will be enough of what I will make available for my people in the Jewish community, and there will be enough for the people of the rest of the world, because I will provide that there is enough. But he needs people like you and me. He needs people like you and me not to be bound or limited by what we think we can do, what we've got enough money or resources to do, what what I can do by myself. There's very little faith required for that. I can just, that's just common sense. I have it, I can use it. It's about generosity, and that's valid. Someone gave the five loaves and two fishes. But this is about vulnerability. This is about faith. This is about not resting on what you can do, but about that honest place that we have to come to sometimes where we say, Lord, I just haven't got it. I can either let that be a barrier or I can let that be an opportunity. 
Lord, I have a heart of compassion or a sense of calling for this or that or the next thing, but I can't see any way. Well, you either stop there or you go on and pray the next bit and you say, but you can, Lord. You can. You see, we can block the kingdom of God by focusing only on ourselves or we can see the kingdom of God extend and expand by believing for what we do not yet see in the lives of those we care about, in the mission that we want to be part of, in the calling that God may have put on your heart but just seems impossible to you. You've already told each other stories of when it seemed impossible and something happened. That wasn't the last time that could happen. And so when you reflect on that painting, reflect on Glasgow City Mission, which fueled by the compassionate heart of Jesus, takes the little of offerings of food, of what people are willing to give in terms of their time, and sits down at table with people in groups of 50 and more to feed and care and to communicate the father and the mother heart of God in around the tables. And if that leads you to want to volunteer and you think, oh, I couldn't, well, don't bother with the I couldn't. You could. But if it leads you to do something else that you think is impossible, we'll just stop focusing on the impossible bit and focus on Jesus. Because if he's calling, he enables. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you've called us to faith and not sight. You've called us to believe and to walk in faith and not just in what we can manage by our own resources. And yes, you've given us gifts and resources and creativity and responsibility with how we steward things. But first and foremost, Lord, you call us to places where we are to be weak and vulnerable so that we can depend on you. And that's when we see the incredible stuff happening. Forgive us, Lord, because we can be so easily inclined to stay within our comfort zone, to play it safe. And yet, Lord, it's being called out of our comfort zone that can release the most dynamic kingdom opportunity. So keep us, Lord, from playing it safe. Make us godly risk-takers. Make us those who are uh, alive with your compassionate heart for the needs of others, for truth, for your gospel, for your kingdom. Lord, if you're our hearts are burning to share the good news of Jesus, then may we not be intimidated into silence, but give us the courage to take the first steps. Lord, we pray and ask that you will show us what our individual response is. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that even now you will kindle in the hearts of your people a conviction, a fire, a passion to to that thing which is for you, which right now seems impossible. But Lord, I pray that you would sow faith that would allow us to believe beyond what we can see or know or understand right now. 
I pray that you would push us out of our comfort zones in all sorts of directions. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, make of us those who go out perhaps with apprehension and return with stories and songs of joy. I pray, Lord, that you would bring us back time and time again to the place of weakness where we have to say we can't, so that we're forced to look at you and say you can. So, Lord, hear us as we pray. (coughs) And as we pray, we think of the weaknesses and the vulnerabilities that others face at this time in our world. We think, Lord, of the uh, immigrant, well, the the people, (coughs) refugee peoples of Syria, the broken lives and the hungry mouths in Yemen. We think of ordinary people in California who have lost everything they ever owned, every treasured memory, every possession, loved ones, who they can't contact and are now fearing dead. And we pray for those ordinary people and the extraordinary people for all of them. Lord, we just think of that part of the United States, and it's so easy for us to think, well, America's a a rich, able country, but there are broken people who are grieving. (coughs) Grieving because of what they've lost, some of them grieving because a wildfire followed another uh, mass shooting. And so we thank, Lord, of the people and pray for them of California at this time. 